Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast, and a whole load of badass. I'm Harriet Minter, and I'm joined by Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. And this week, we are talking about, well, why it is none of us can be honest about the number of sexual partners we've had. Plus, would you lie to your other half about how much you earn? And we meet the young author whose book is about to make her the next J.K. Rowling. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four! We are kicking off with our new stories of the week. Um, I think we're going to start with... Women and men lying about their numbers of sexual partners. Emma, this is your story, sis. Yeah, this was a very interesting one. Apparently, so the question was, do men really have more sexual partners than women? Uh, and apparently men tend to estimate the figure while women actually count. So there's a tendency. So when a guy tells you the number of people he slept with, it's likely to be more of an estimate than an, ex, uh, than an exact calculation and probably over estimating so i think this is interesting because weirdly somebody yesterday did actually ask me the number of people i've slept with we won't get into the context who's still counting like this is it i could i couldn't tell you for love nor money no i don't know a friend of mine though she does keep a spreadsheet and i'm just like she's like don't you don't you keep like a note of like and i was like no not really if they were good i'll remember it thing <laughs> well i'm just for anyone thinking why is this news well it's news because 15,000 people were surveyed 15,000 and it was done at the university of glasgow and men said that they had an average of 14 lifetime partners while women reported 7 so we actually know the number of men like, mm, give or take 14 14 sounds good yeah i'll go with that number and you know i think I actually think that the numbers are probably the same for men and women. And it depends on the sorts of relationships you get into. So for people that are serial monogamists, so they've had lots of long-term relationships from the moment they started dating, their numbers are probably, you know, five to seven, maybe less. For anyone that went straight into uh, more explorative dating and... um, you know, just uh, living a bit more, let's say. I love that term, more explorative dating. (laughs) For anyone who got a bit drunk at uni and had a good time. Yeah. 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 Uh, It might be in, you know, in the teens to to 20s or 30s. And for anyone who ended up working in the city, you know, who knows? (laughs) 
Um, so it just depends on what happened in life. Yeah. Do you think, I, I don't know. I don't know this. I've got no facts. This is my assumption. I kind of feel like men find it a bit easier to be promiscuous, where I feel like women have promiscuous stages. Oh, yes. Don't I you think? Agree when I look at there. my mates, I look at my own personal experience, I, but I feel like men... They don't necessarily have that. They're either in a relationship or then they're, they're not. And they they don't have this. Like, I've got friends who perhaps might, yeah. might not, you know, have sex for months if they're single. And because yeah. they're just not into being one night stands. That's not the phase they're in. I'm but I feel like guys yeah. are a bit less. They don't necessarily have that. That's not a criticism, men. I'm just saying I think it's a difference. And but... men, do you also know that you're horny more times a day because your hormones work in a different way so you are a you are sexually and uh, biologically ready to have babies what a couple of times a day or i think well, i don't think they're ready to have babies i think they're just ready to practice <laughs> making them oh well, yeah there's a big yeah, difference between yeah. those two things uh, i missed that that biology class whereas women we are only fertile and therefore slightly more horny for a couple of days in any given month so if you think about it in terms of the, the biology, I mean, it, it would make sense. Mm. It would be. I just, for me, the thing that doesn't make sense, it's not the biology, it's the maths. So, <laughs> yeah, you struggle with this. I really like, struggle with this. Let me think about this. Because what this means, if, if we're saying that on average men are having, have more sexual partners than the average woman does, then surely that means that there are some women who are just massive outliers who are having sex with all the men. And then there are others of us that are just, you know, hanging out, only having sex with one or two of them. And that, for me, just really confirms that whole sort of Madonna, woman of the night thing that we already have going about women. I just think men talk about what's, it more. What's Madonna, woman of the night? What? Uh, Madonna whore. Madonna whore complex. Oh, know, right. Okay. That women go one way or the other. It, uh... I just think, I, I don't believe the survey because I just don't think the maths is right. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I think the maths is wrong. Guys, I think you inflate the numbers. And I think some women definitely know because I've just been told our producer, Holly, actually keeps a list on her phone. So, well done. Maybe, Do you, Holly. Good well girl. done. Good girl. You're never going to run out of storage space, that's for sure. <laughs> now, earlier this week, there was uh, just an amazing video that went viral. I don't know who, if any of you saw it, but it was Swedish student Ellen Erison standing on a flight um, out of Gothenburg Airport refusing to sit down until a man who was on that flight because he was being deported to Afghanistan was taken off the flight and allowed to remain in Sweden. Uh, we've got a bit of the audio ready for you here. You can hear it. This is her on the flight filming her protest refusing to sit down. I'm right now at an airport, at an airplane, and there's a person getting deported to Afghanistan. Please don't take my phone. Don't touch my phone. And the people here working are trying to take my phone away from me just because Shut the person down, go is home. going Shut to down. get deported to Shut Afghanistan down. where there's more and he's Shut. going to get killed. And I'm not going to sit down until this person Please is off the plane. Because he will most likely get killed if he is on this plane when it goes up. And the pilot has the right to say that he is not allowed to be on the plane. So that was uh, Ellen Erson protesting the deportation of a man back to Afghanistan by refusing to sit down on a plane, refusing to allow it to take off. I was in chilling. awe when I saw that. Yeah. Matt, what did you think of it? Absolutely, absolutely chilling. Listening to it again, it just, it's either that or the aircon in, in the office <laughs> <laughs> sent shivers uh, down my spine. And that, in that moment when you see that happening, 
what do you decide to do? You see someone being forcibly put on a plane protesting. Do you sit do you sit through that flight knowing what that person's going back to you? or do you stand up and you can hear everyone in the background I don't know if it's a steward or it's just someone else on the plane saying sit down and it, you know great smart thinking on her part because she knew the pilot could say this plane is not going up and due to her actions the the, the flight didn't take off now what I want to know actually is whether or not they just put him on another flight so they don't know what uh she we don't know what's going to happen to him so we know he's been deported and he still uh, hasn't been deported but he's still being held in detention right um so i imagine that it's a, a later point he will be deported she i think is part of a larger group that is sort of protesting about this generally mm. last year sweden deported over 400 people back to afghanistan which really shocked me actually because i always see Sweden is this sort of fantastically liberal, open country. And when stuff like this happens, I remember that it's really not. Emma, would you, if you were on that flight, do you think you would have stood with her and said, he has to come off this plane? Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, well, do you know what? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Because I think when you only get part of a story it's like mm -hmm. I, for her clearly there's a there's a bigger movement here that she is part of so she clearly knows a bit more maybe she knows this person personally and I think that's very different and if I was involved in that story then I absolutely I think I would but if I was just on that plane cold and didn't know what was going on I think I'd find it hard to take a stand without really understanding the full context is that bad of me I don't know she's maybe also like... saying so to to your point before Harriet um someone on the plane says but you're preventing all these passengers passengers from getting to their destination uh someone off camera says um and she strikes back and says yes but they're not going to die when he gets to his destination he is going to die um someone else then says it's your country's rules and she says yes i'm trying to change the rules i don't like them it's not right to send people to hell so it's obviously part of a bigger and broader protest and i think it's part of a consciousness uh, an, an awakeness because virgin atlantic have stopped uh, a month ago said that they are no longer taking part in um deportation they will no longer support the deportation of people from the uk to various countries and thinking about where virgin atlantic fly it's usually the caribbean and other places and connected to windrush and other things mm -hmm. you know if airlines and people on flights don't take a stand then it never really reaches the mainstream consciousness. And we should be having a conversation about deportation and immigration because it's not simple. It's not a one size fits all. It's not that someone in a country should not be there. It's not that simple. We know that there are you know, wars still raging all over the world. And so she felt based on this context of this person being sent back to Afghanistan, where there is still a war raging, that it was in, you know, the, her, the thing that she, that she felt right doing was standing up and saying no. And I think which is it really got me about this was it it does feel like we are in a moment of time where people are physically protesting, mm. where they people are standing up and saying this this isn't okay, I don't want this to happen. And you know, we saw it in the US um with the immigration scandal and oh, kids in cages, I can't bear that saying. Um, where the airlines did something similar and they refused to deport parents. And actually it's so it feels like it's individuals it's corporates everyone is sort of standing up and saying no we don't want to live in this world but the thing that frustrates me is i'm not sure anything's changing because of it it is so in the case you that think? you're talking about um children being deported over the mex back over the yep. mexican border or separated from parents at the mexican border um i'm not fully au fait with all of the details 
but the the outcry did uh trigger exactly so legislative legislative change i still can't get the words out and you know this is one story in the context of um sweden i think the fact that it's gaining worldwide coverage it means politicians start talking about things and ultimately if, if you're protesting that's all you can really hope for you hope that people start talking you hope that those that govern a country start talking and saying maybe this is wrong maybe we should do something about it our next news story this week more more stats damn stats and lies is that what it is <laughs> uh about whether or not we tell our partner the truth about how much we earn natalie what do we know about this? Yes, new research from the U.S. Census Bureau. So again, this this is real, real stuff. <laughs> uh, shows that one in four heterosexual couples um, had wives out earning their husbands. In those cases, though, the husbands overreported their income. So that basically means in couples where there was one man, one woman, one in four of those couples the husbands overreported their income even though their wives earned more than them so it got us thinking why or do women that you know, in relationships where they're dating men or, or married to men that earn more than them are they lying about their income both when asked uh, in a in a professional sense or asked by friends so Emma, you had the lovely Trisha Goddard on the show a few weeks ago and yeah. she had a view on this, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, she did, when you two dumped me for a nice holiday somewhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she's been married three times and every single really? time, yeah, she's been the one that's earned the most. Yeah. And she said that she would never marry or be involved with somebody again who wasn't earning as much as or more than. She said it absolutely affects the dynamic of the relationship. In what way? Uh, well, probably negatively. She, <laughs> yeah. She's got three divorces, and she had to give them half her earnings. No, uh, no, but it, you know, it, uh, but that's the case for lots of men. So there are lots of men that are earning more than women. So I'm saying, what is the dynamic that flips when a woman is earning more than a man? Does does the man feel emasculated? Does the woman feel like she's the one that's a bringing in all the bacon and then you know, I having I just, to? I just do wonder all of the if other it's stuff. less about ego are more about the imbalance there is with money do you know what I mean because I kind of feel like you know I you know there can be a guy and feel the main supporter and you know your wife's not earning as much does that not cause some sort of resentment and conflict because you know like well I think it what happens is traditionally we're so used to men being the provider in quotes that you end up in a sort of place where you just go, oh, I just expect the man to provide. And men go, I just kind of expect to provide. But there is still a level of resentment. And there's a really lovely um, piece of research done by oh, Christine North... North oh, her name will come back to me. Uh, an American researcher, she researches hormones and particularly hormones in women around the kind of menopausal era and effect that has on relationships. Mm. And what she found was that for men and women at the kind of menopausal age, for men, their hormones are kind of, you know, quietening down a bit and they want to be with somebody who's caring and nurturing. And for women, it's kind of theirs are revving up a bit and they're like, oh, I want to go out, see the world, have adventures. And that's where you get this kind of like anger point where men are going hang on but I've been looking after you I've been financially providing for you for however many years I now want you to kind of emotionally nurture me 
and that doesn't happen and then people get divorced so I think even though we traditionally do have this idea of men as providers and kind of women as receiving that provision I think that breeds resentment for the guys Mm, yeah Um, how would you now how would you feel about dating somebody who earned less than you so there are a couple of things there how much less what is it that he's doing and you know what are what lifestyle are we trying to lead so if it's that i earn say he earns a third of what i earn but he loves what he's doing and he wakes up every day and he passionate and committed and excited by life that is completely fine if he earns a third of what i earn and he hates his job and he doesn't want to be doing it and he gets spoken down to that is not going to be for me that relationship wouldn't work because that we have a values misalignment completely have a values misalignment. yeah less about money right yeah and then so if i'm then with someone who earns a third of what i earn and they have big ideas of living a grand lifestyle off my income (laughs) then we equally have a problem (laughs) it's like but it's the majority of the money going into that pot to create this lifestyle that you're coming up with is mine so if you want to have that life great but you, you're going to have to raise your income. But what happens if you want to have that life? So if you're like, actually, I want to go out for dinner at these really nice places. I want to go then on these I'm amazing holidays. I, but yeah. I'm going to have to pay for you to come with me. So but, you're saying you pay for him. If he was earning less money but doing something he loves, so yes. say he's starting up his own business, would you then pay for that lifestyle that you want? I th- Well, it needs to be within reason and balance. If it was money... So I've always said if, uh, if I can... Aff- if I, so I will lend people money and I will spend money if I don't have anxiety handing it over because that means that you know I've got the money in the bank and so yes because I do it for my friends if I, w- I want to do something I want to go somewhere I want to experience something and I don't want to do it alone and a friend can't afford it I'll just buy two mm. and it because I, I want to and, and life isn't about having lots of for me having lots of money locked away in a bank account it's doing the things that I love so yes I would the difference is how invested I am in that relationship so I wouldn't do it for someone that I didn't see a future with and I wouldn't do it for someone and equally it's the reason why I'm single if I if I wouldn't be in a relationship just to be in a relationship Mm -hmm. so I think if if I was resenting paying money for putting money towards a a future with with a guy I probably don't want to be with him Mm. Emma what about you uh my thing has always been I so I'm a bit like Natalie I don't think I could date somebody who really hated what they did unless they were making moves to change it because that is a values Mm. thing but money wise I'd be like as long as you're paying your own way and you're paying your bills and you don't need my money for for anything because I don't expect you to to give me any money so I don't want you to expect me to give you any money then I'm fine for me there's no reason to kind of even know what my partner earns um, unless we were like further down a serious relationship. I had one friend who was earning more than her partner and um, they had a, a joint account. But if if they went out and he paid for something, he would remind her and say, oh, can you give me the money back for so-and-so? Or I put an extra 20 quid in on the food shop. And it drove her insane. But she in essence had said you know this is the guy she wants to marry 
And it became such a huge issue because she's AI earns so much more and I'm constantly paying for things. But the minute he pays for something once that's not out of the joint account, he will ask me for his or for yeah, my but then if you're back. on a budget if you're on a budget you need to get that money back right i like all, all logic says yes yeah. but it drove her insane and yeah they didn't because make 20 it. quid to her is probably not a big deal but no, for him, him 20 quid might have been you know that that's probably been budgeted or allocated to yeah. somebody i think your mate's a bit mean the, uh, that, di- that, that <laughs> dynamic drove, drove absolutely drove yeah. her insane well, and their relationship didn't last in the end hmm. that is why i think it's such an interesting issue because money and love I don't think they are good bedfellows. Separate, separate. Or just create a little fun fund where you both pay an equal amount into the fun fund and then you spend that fun fund on fun. My gran always said, love does not pay the bills. <laughs> it does not. <laughs> Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. So one woman who is definitely killing it this year <laughs> is the amazing Tomi Adiyemi. Hello, Tomi. Welcome to the Hi. studio. <laughs> it's so funny. I thought you were going to say one woman who's definitely out uh, earning her money. <laughs> <laughs> I, was in, I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. But we can ask. <laughs> I was like, cool intro. <laughs> <laughs> Tomi is the author of The Children of Blood and Bone, a New York Times bestseller about to be turned into a movie, debut young adult novel <laughs> tell me it's been a bit of a whirlwind congratulations thank you thank you so much tell us about writing young adult had you written it before i've always written young like adult mm-hmm. novels and i've always read them and i think there's a misconception um from the adult perspective because they think young adult and it's like oh it's got to be about girls getting their periods and yeah. ponies and horses yeah um and then they pick up a book and they're like whoa this is like game of thrones and it's i think it's because society still looks down on young adults as opposed to, you know, they're growing up in the world. They have internet, you know, they have social media, they know what's going on. And a lot of times I find that our young adults are more empathetic, more active, more, I know I keep finding all these 11 year old girls who are like saving the world in one way or another. (laughs) Um, So it's very freeing because I get to write the tales that I want to write with the intensity that I want to write and the action and the truth and, you know, the violence and the honesty. Um, And they, you know, they're so passionate about it they're way like adult readers are really passionate Mm -hmm. but like young adult readers when you give them a story they love they like love it with their whole heart and they wrap sort of their their growth around (laughs) it which i think is why we have the harry potter generation so it's it's really an honor to write for them because they're passionate but you also feel like you're giving a message or you're giving like empowerment to the people who need it most and people are saying you're the next jk rowling so (laughs) Congrats. So we, we're not, we can definitely say out earning around half that point. <laughs> For anyone who hasn't read The Children of Blood and Bone, give us a little pricey of what it's about. Yes. Yeah, so the really quick pitch is Black Panther with magic. Um, it's about a girl fighting to bring magic back to her people, but it's in this epic West African setting. So they're racing through jungles. They're riding on the back of giant lions. You know, there's magic from African religion and mythology that a lot of people haven't seen before. So it's this really big epic adventure amazing and is this the first book that you've written it's the first book i've had published um i guess it is the second book that i finished ever in my life but i have a lot of unfinished books because i've been writing (laughs) since i was like around six 
And wow. Yeah. I saw online that it was a picture that you found that kind of inspired the book. Could you yeah. tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So I was in Brazil and I was in a gift shop and I was just there because I didn't want my hair to get wet. So I was like, OK, look alive, <laughs> look interesting. Um, but I, I passed these tiles and they had the Orisha on them. And on at the time, I thought the Orisha were like African gods and goddesses because I saw like, you know, like a dark man, like engulfed in flame and breathing fire. And I saw this beautiful black goddess like in the ocean and it was it was magical but it was also the first time I realized there even could be black gods and goddesses you know growing up especially as a fantasy lover we're surrounded with these epic wizards and you know Zeus and Poseidon and Artemis and Venus so we know there can be these sacred magical beings but they're never black so never in my mind did it like it never crossed my mind that there could be a black god and goddess and let alone like hundreds and so when i discovered that like it really exploded my imagination and i started seeing this world um and i named the world in my book orisha like as a direct tribute to them because that's really what inspired the whole world yeah so you have this moment of inspiration yeah from that moment to the last word yeah written how long was that Let's see, because I didn't start the story when I got that. So I found that the summer of, let's say, 2015, um, and I was trying to get, I was still working on the first book I tried to get published that didn't get published. So I would say eight months after that, or around April of 2016, I find another picture, and this time it's a black girl with like luminescent green hair, and I'm so captivated by it. I actually loved it so much that I replaced the picture of me and my boyfriend on the home screen as like this <laughs> random digital illustration because I'm like it's so beautiful um, and I was daydreaming about her and her story and I realized her story fit in the world so if we don't count like the eight months I was still on another story then it was 18 months from opening the first draft to turning in the final this past December yeah. and so in the process of writing that's 18 months of coming up with worlds and characters and yeah how, how as a writer do you do that whilst also going into the real world because it's 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 a fantasy that doesn't exist mixed with real life which has been quite hard over the last 18 months yeah and that was the thing because half of the book because the book is this big epic fantasy but it's also an allegory for the modern black experience Mm. um and especially in the united states we're really struggling with police brutality um on top of even just civilian killings of black people and bombings of black like spaces and and gun violence on top of that so there's it's a lot and Mm -hmm. it's hard to live and that's one of the reasons i wrote the book is because i was feeling very helpless and so writing a story that was like an escape because we're we're in the jungle, we're on giant lions where we have this magic, but, uh, but an escape that was dealing with real issues was therapeutic. Um, so on that point, that was almost as difficult as it was. It was like the most cathartic process. The actual logistics of getting that book done. Like I have like six white hairs now <laughs> and they're not going anywhere. And they, my boyfriend's like, where'd those come from? And I was like, the book. The book took it from me and it'll take many more. <laughs> so it's, it, it's, a, it's a like emotionally that part was okay. I think logistically just trying to do it in 18 months was wild because most books, until you get that publishing deal, you have as long as, you know, as long as it takes. And then once you get that deal, it usually still takes a year or two years past that. And we 
all of this from when I was writing it on my own to being with the publisher to putting it out was done in like less time. So it was, and then yeah, just wild. quickly before um, goes in with her, her next question. Yeah. In then writing in the process of writing, Black Panther comes out, and and you started and you said you know part of this imagine it's Black Panther yeah. but you didn't know that when you started yeah, writing I the book yeah I used to pitch so. it as African The Last Airbender okay. and for young adult <laughs> audiences and adults that grew up watching it like me like we know what that means right away <laughs> um, and it was funny because my whole mission as a writer is I wanted to do what Black Panther did I <laughs> wanted this epic movie with like great characters and great worlds and a big budget but with black faces because we it didn't exist beforehand and it didn't exist when I was thinking of this or when I was writing it mm. so I think it was maybe like six months from publication when I saw the Black Panther trailer and I was just like oh my gosh and then my book came out like I think like three weeks after Black Panther. Yeah. So a lot of people were like, oh, did you see this? And I was like, no, I still had to imagine this years before yeah. because now it's great. We all have this touch point. We know what it looks like. We know yeah. it can be commercially successful. Um, but before it was still beyond the realm of imagination. But it's a beautiful coincidence yes. that that happened. The book came out yeah. at the same time. And now that reality is real for so many people. Yes. And also uh, brands and businesses know how commercially viable exactly like this be, which I is equally important feel like children like children of blood and bone is going to be expensive to make <laughs> and i feel like the massive success of black panther especially when it has it has the comic book series but like yeah. the it's not the same as when you're adapting like harry potter mm -hmm. i feel like that's going to really allow us to have like a great budget because yeah. people are going to be like yeah if we make this good like the people are going to come they yeah. want to see more of these stories and we still don't have a lot yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> was there a moment that you realized after the book was published that you'd you'd really kind of um you were you were hitting on big success because you know it's not it's very rare for an author like yourself to have their first book published and to kind of blow up in the way that yeah. you have done was there a moment that you were like oh my gosh this is this is big it's funny my editor and I were we had a call yesterday to talk about like some book two stuff and we were joking that when after book two comes out, she's like, I think we need to, like, you need to take two months off just to process what's going on because it, the the whole process too leading up to the book is there was so much buzz and excitement, and a lot of people are being like, this next Harry Potter, this is the next Hunger Games, this is next Game of Thrones, and I think a lot of these big series that hit, like, their books have buzz, but it was like knowing it was gonna be a thing before it was a thing. Yeah. I don't know yeah. many people that have been in that situation. And so that was a weird thing to grapple with because people were like excited and claiming these things for something that they hadn't experienced yet. Mm -hmm. And then with, I mean, it, it comes in ways, but there's no way for me to really process it. And sometimes I get confused, you know, like I got to go on The Tonight Show and meet Jimmy Fallon and he was so incredible. And afterwards that night, I was like, did this happen because of one book? <laughs> Have I written more books? <laughs> going, you know, the book has only been out. It'll be five months on August 6th. So it's like I'm still not used to living with a book out in the world, mm. let alone doing what it's do. Like the fact that we're sitting here and talking about it and even like Maxine and she had read it and we were talking about it and even that's new for me to do interviews with people who have read it and loved it like that's still it's I'm still transitioning so it it hits in very strange or even today I was at a young adult festival Yalk and like 300 people lined up for a signing and I couldn't get to them all in two hours and I was like 
what? I was like, are there even 300 people in this room? Like, how are you all in this room? Wait, I'm going to keep talking to Tommy about the sheer joy of being an author here on Badass Women's Hour. The Vampire Strikes Back. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. Welcome back to Badass Women's RXL with me, Harriet Minton, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. And this week we are lucky enough to have Tomi Adeyemi in the studio with us, best-selling author of The Children of Blood and Bone. Tomi, thank you so much for staying with us. Oh, thank you guys. I'm having a lot of fun. <laughs> so in the break, we were talking about what happens next. And you said you're already writing the sequel. Yeah. How are you managing <laughs> writing a book, touring another book, keeping it all in your, keeping it all together, really? Yeah, I don't think I I don't have an answer because <laughs> sometimes I'm like, am I managing it? Like, we'll find out. So, um, for me, I think I found in general I'm kind of a scatterbrain person. So what I learned is it's just hour to hour, and it's yeah. like, what what do you have to do that hour? Um, do you need to go? To- hey, folks! I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The bathroom. Do you need to eat? Do you need to do an interview? Uh, so that's kind of how I do it. I don't know if I'm managing it, but that's that's how I'm operating right now. <laughs> so as well as being an author, you're also a writing coach. And your website has been named as one of the best websites for young writers to go and look at if they want to know how to do it. Yeah. If somebody's sitting there being like, do you know what, I just really also mm. want to write a best-selling saga. What are some top tips? Yeah, I mean, the, it's the. I think the best thing is a lot of the tips are very easy, so anyone can do it, and it's mostly psychological. Um, so, like the very easy, concrete tips are just read and write. You know, both of those things build your skill as a writer. The a big reason that my first book didn't get published is because I wasn't reading Mm. so what I wrote wasn't in tune with what people wanted to read and I would say the difference between my first book obviously my first book taught me everything I needed to know for like children of blood and bone but from a studying perspective the biggest difference was like learning about plot and reading three great books Mm. 
and you know that's not a lot that's not too much to do to become better and i know i'm i'm like i'm a ravenclaw i go between ravenclaw and slytherin but like i really you know so it's like i know i study things and i'm always analyzing things but really just reading three great books taught me so much more about fantasy than i could have learned in like an mfa or something like that so the barriers to entry are low what were the three great books yes it was red queen by victoria aveyard um, An Ember in the Ashes by Saba Tahir and Shadow Shaper by Daniel Jose Older. And they really, with Red Queen and An Ember in the Ashes, they like, okay, I would say Red Queen opened my eyes to what fantasy is today, which is like book seven and book one. So we don't need to slowly parse it out. Like you can drop yeah. someone in a new world with epic battle and romance and like they're ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, An Ember in the Ashes, like it took my breath away. I've never been so dehydrated reading a book because I was like, I can't get up. I'm so sweaty, but I need to be under my cover because that is how I like to read. And, you know, just the the epicness and the scale and the fact that it was inspired by real world problems and occurrences was very powerful. And then with Shadow Shaper, it's about it's an urban fantasy about this Afro Latina um And, you know, so it has the adventure, but there was these two paragraphs in it where she was talking about the self-esteem issues you have as a woman of color in the United States. And it was two paragraphs written by a man, like in the middle of this 300 page book. But I felt like I was reading a diary entry Mm -hmm. and it showed me that like if you if you write if you do it right, if you execute it correctly, then you can make something so internal universal so that anyone can understand what it feels like to be a woman of color. And for me, it was like, okay, I can tell this epic fantasy. I can make it about police brutality and the issues black people face. I can, if I do it right, people can understand what it feels like to be black in America. And, you know, so it was, Mm -hmm. it was that. And I do think, you know, I'm religious. So I do think it was kind of fate that I read those three books, but, but yeah, I got that just from reading and I read really great stories too. So that's why I say like read, write and don't beat yourself up because whether you're writing fan fiction or you have a bunch of unfinished books like I only have three finished books one I'm still revising and I've been writing my whole life but all those unfinished things were training and I didn't look at it that way before so that's those are my tips for writers you said the book was born out of anger yeah yeah can you tell us a little bit about that yeah I mean it's very very messed up in the United States right now especially for minorities and with black people it's the we've always had a deep issue with racism and the violence that comes from racism and I don't think police brutality is new but I think because of video cameras we see it and now we see it constantly Mm -hmm. so when it's one thing to be afraid of you know some racist guy getting a gun and killing me that's like a fear I've had to live with every day but when I see the cops my fear is oh god you know, like we we pay them from our taxes where they're supposed to be the ones to protect us. But like I am afraid for my life when I see the cops and I didn't you know, I recently had a bad encounter with them, too, which didn't help anything. But I remember the last thing, like maybe two weeks ago, I was walking to like uh, I was walking to a class and I saw cop lights. And instead of thinking, oh, I wonder what's happening in this area. I was like, oh, my God, I hope I don't see them. You know, and they, their car was parked, so they were investigating a crime, but I didn't care. I was not scared of whatever crime was going on. I was scared of them. Mm. And, like, that's, 
that's the reality. There are lots of teenagers, black teenagers don't want to get their driver's license because they think they're going to get shot. You know, it's, it's, it's constant and we see it. We see it every single day. Um, and there's a lot of anger that comes from that. I recently at Comic-Con, I was asked about like, oh, how do you balance the, that like not portraying powerful woman as scary or angry? And I was like, first of all, you should be angry. There's a lot of bad things going on right now. Mm-hmm. And second of all, you should be scared. <laughs> I was like, angry women are terrifying. You know, I was like, it's not about balancing that. You know, I'm trying not to swear on air. But, you know, I was like, you don't need to balance it. It's real. Like, be afraid. So it's, I, I'm someone I'll get, I'll, my heart will break. And I'll be very sad. And I'll be crying and I'll be despondent. But then I'll get angry. And when I'm angry, that's where my, I would say, my power and my productivity comes from. It's not about spreading that anger, but it's about, I'll get you back. <laughs> you know, I had a teacher in college who wouldn't let me into his fiction writing class. And he was like, yeah, well, if you're making these mistakes, I can't teach you how to write. And I was like, I'll get you back. <laughs> I didn't even believe in myself then to be a writer. But I was like, but I believe in my pettiness. <laughs> and I will succeed just to spite you. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. And I love that you put that bit about kind of harnessing anger in, you put it in the author's notes at the back, didn't, if the book yeah. didn't you, which is, I just think it's such a great message, A, to young women, because we're so often taught to not be angry yeah, or to which is like, rid- contain it. Ridiculous. Or, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but also to writers. Like, yeah. actually, it's a great, if something makes you angry, it probably makes somebody else angry. And yeah. there's a great story in that. Yeah, there. it really, I think it's, we there's something we there was a hashtag that went out in the young adult community in um in the US and it was write your resistance and i think it like whether you're a writer or a protester or a singer or an actress or a business person or a lawyer like whatever it is that you do and whatever it is you're passionate about there's a way to use what you do to fight back against all the horrible things happening in the world and to empower and help the people who need it and to push back against the people who are spewing like you know bigotry and racism and all these other horrible things and so I think it's like have your emotions but the at least the only way I can exist right now is by doing what I know how to do which is right against that because otherwise it's just a non-stop barrage of horrible things and especially writers tend to be very empathetic so then you just feel horrible all the time and how are you going to continue to live like that so I think now more than ever it's very important to find that thing that makes you feel like you have your power and to use it because otherwise you'll just be like crushed Mm -hmm. and when can we expect the film to come out yes so it's I've heard different things because the the great thing about the studio is they're so enthusiastic. They're like, you know, every time I talk to them or meet with them, they're like, God, I wish we could be on set right now. And that's exactly what you want. <laughs> but they're also patient. And because they know what this is and they know what it means, they want to get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're going to have the final script in a couple of months. And then once that happens, I think things are going to go pretty quickly. So my hope is between production and special effects that if it's not 2019 that it would be 2020 okay um but yeah it's it's exciting and especially because the movies they're putting out right now have been amazing like they did love simon and i love that and they have the hate you give coming out in october 
Um, and a lot of these things, they got in and they went to work. So if mm-hmm. I didn't have all this fire and magic and giant <laughs> lions, like we'd probably already be filming. But I was, I wanted to make something impossible to adapt. So, do you think it's gonna be difficult yeah. to bring to life your vision yeah. for the book? Because you've imagined this sort of fantasy yeah. world. Like, do you think it's gonna be hard to match what's in your head? Do you want them to match what's in your head? Are you open to how it's interpreted? Typically, in in general. I would say, oh, yeah, it's going to be so difficult and I'm very nervous with them. Like everyone that's involved is so great and so passionate and so they care. You know, that's like when when they care about the material that they're not only taking my vision, but they're adding to it. So I saw they even like even collages they put. I had a Pinterest board of like 900 images. And when the script writer handed in the script, he took them and made them into like thing. And so they were images that I had given them. But the way he put them in collage, I was like, wait, this is it. Where'd you get these? It's like I literally gave them yeah. to him. So I was like, this is my vision. But it's like I could like they they they're taking it and building on it. So it's this crazy harmony where I'm like, oh, my God, I love that. And they're like, well, I did that because of this. And in my head, it's like, okay, well, cool. It's cool to have the the citation, but it feels like sometimes I feel like, oh, that's just awesome, and I don't even remember where it's coming from. So it's, mm-hmm. I think that's the that's the best because if it's just my head, if you have two great minds working together, mm-hmm. then you can make it even better. Mm-hmm. And that's what I feel like they're doing, and I love it. It's so cool. Have you got anyone you really want to be in it? Well, since we're in the UK, <laughs> <laughs> I have like some. Okay. Okay. <laughs> just put your cards on the table. Yeah. Who, who I'm want? just gonna put the. I'll, yeah. I'll put two cards on the table because we are in the UK. So one card is the only one I feel safe saying because when I was writing this character, I had Idris Elba's picture up on my <laughs> monitor, <laughs> and I literally would write scenes by like looking at him, <laughs> describing him, and picturing him in my head. Um, so I, with the King Saran, that role was basically written for him. And Amazing. so I feel like he should low key do it. Yeah, <laughs> um, low key, all the key, low, above okay, the key, all, the, all key. the key. I feel like I can't say high key. You should do this, but like low key, this was kind of written for you, <laughs> and people kind of like it. So there's that. And then my other, like I, the other ones, I like I see all these people, and I'm like, oh, you could be great for this role, and you could be great, and you could be great. So I'm not married to it. But whenever like John Boyega goes on a talk show and basically starts <laughs> dancing, I'm like, okay, Zane, and he's Nigerian too, so. Yeah. Or, like, I think he went to Nigeria and, like, it was to promote Pacific Rim, I think. And he was meeting all these kids and they were bowing and it was just so cute. So I just feel like he has his personality within himself. Um, So that's 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 my, like, hypothesis. You put it out there now. It's totally going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely love it. Was there a point, you know, book aside where you knew you wanted to be a writer and actually things just weren't working out? Because... We always have to remember the hard yes. times, especially yes. in the good times. Yes. That's, the, that's the shot in the arm that keeps us moving. Yes. And I think it's very important, too, because our society likes to paint these pictures of instant success. Yeah. And they like to paint it like this person just popped out of the womb at 23. <laughs> yes, and now they were writing since she was six. Author. So yes. I'm so guessing it's been a journey. For what you. I always tell people, too, is like, like with Chance the Rapper, like three Grammys at 23, but he put out his first like really awesome mixtape when he was 17 Simone Biles all these gold medals has been training since she was like six Mm -hmm. you know a lot of these things have years under them and then for me with 
like I said, Children of Blood and Bone is the second book I tried to get published. And it that process, the whole process took a year and a half, which is insane. But the book I tried to get published before that took four years and went nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was that four year process which felt horrible at the time, especially because I was at a job I didn't like. And so I was looking at that book as like I need I need you to work out so I can live my dream. What and was the job? The job was it was like data analytics, but using the data analytics to market in a production studio in Hollywood. And it's okay, no, so it's still kind of glamorous. I was like, <laughs> well, no, you... no, it wasn't that uh, I thought it would be cool. <laughs> like I it started out great, but because it was a newer part of the company what we would do would change from month to month so it went from all these great things to just uploading ads on twitter Mm -hmm. and i was like i'm gonna pull my hair out and so i was miserable and because i was miserable i went from like i would get off at work around six and then i would write from like six to midnight Mm -hmm. and i was desperate so i was writing from this place of intense desperation and so whenever i got close to a yes i'd be on cloud nine and when it turned into a low i would be crushed um and over the course of that process that like the intensity I did that for like six months and so when I started getting the no's I like and I I moved forward a bit and I realized the intensity with which I was pursuing this meant I could no longer deny I wanted to be a writer Mm -hmm. I had lied to myself my whole life and I'm like oh no you like writing but you could do finance (laughs) you know like I told myself I could be happy doing any like other things as long as they involve stories and it forced me to admit to myself that what I wanted to do was that, which meant I now owed it to myself to fully pursue it. Um, But I think I also realized, Hey, if you want to write full time, you can write full time. Like you don't need to work at this place for income. All you need is rent and Thai food. And so (laughs) it's like, now just go get money for rent. You know? So it was about reprioritizing, not based off society or my Nigerian parents, but like, (laughs) okay, this is what you want. So what do you need to get what you want? Like, let's just, go for it let's at least go full throttle for a year and see where you land because i knew if i tried very hard for a year i would get somewhere that could justify continuing to lead my life off of what it is i wanted to do um i didn't think i would be where i am (laughs) right now i thought that would take maybe 10 to 15 years so it's it's cool to be here (laughs) were you ever close to giving up in that no because i Again, because it forced me to be honest. So I didn't have, I'd had this dream my whole life, but I was never, I didn't just go for it. I went for it on the side. I started writing intensely after work to avoid traffic. Right. You know, so because I spent so much time lying to myself and was so miserable at my other job, as I slowly got the courage to go for it, I was like, okay. You know, again, I was going to go for a year and it was sort of risk-free to try something very hard for a year. And yeah, so I didn't get close to a point of wanting to give up, especially because that first Monday where I left my job and woke up to write and like to outline CBB, the peace I felt, I didn't realize how noisy it was in my head until I was doing that. And I knew then that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. And that was well before anyone like well before I knew anything that would happen because I think it's easy for people to say like yeah sure but you quit your job and this happened and then I was like yes I know but it's like that one Monday where I was like oh this is right and like it's crazy how right this is I just got to keep going and I think a lot of people it still was scary 
Um, but I think a lot of people that I talk to now when they like make that big jump mm. and it's like you feel so alive doing the mm. thing that you love, especially when you've spent so much time doing something you don't love yeah. that it's kind of in it, you know, until push really comes to shove and you can't live doing that. Yeah. You're sort of like, I got to make this work. Mm-hmm. I got to do it until I, I physically can. And usually if you go with at it with that attitude for long enough, you can make it work long enough to sustain you. Oh yeah, yeah. love it. Amazing. <laughs> Can I ask what happened when you took Children of Blood and Blown out there? Did did any is there a publisher out there like now kicking themselves because they turned it down? <laughs> there, I did get like like I think like maybe two imprints of pub like because mm-hmm. publishers are made out yep. of a bunch of different imprints which are like mini publishers. So I did get some imprints that like turned me down, but mostly it was pretty aggressive. <laughs> And everybody wanted it. And it was like, but the other crazy thing too, especially in the creative field is like as soon, even before that, when I had to pick my agent, I went from on my first book getting rejected by like, I say 12 agents and that's just the 12 people who took the time to read the full story. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd gotten rejected by 60 agents over six months, 12 of like substance and feedback um, with children of blood and bone in six days I'd had 12 offers wow. Wow. and of like, I want to represent you and I want to sell this book big. And it was, you know, and some of those people were people who were rejected the first one and not in a rude way. The mm-hmm. first one like should have been rejected, but you know, it was the complete, mm-hmm. complete reversal. And the one thing too is uh, it, content is important, but like every creative industry is also a business. Mm-hmm. And so if you aren't making decisions that are best for your business, then you're it's not that things can go wrong but they can go much less right and so i feel like i would say blessed and part of it is blessed but part of it was like research and neuroticism and talking to as many people as i can i mean like what do i need in an agent what do i need in a publisher what do i need in an editor what should i be looking for and and seeing that I feel like all of those things have aligned to make Children of Blood and Bone what it is now. And I think if I'd done even one thing differently, we probably wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So final question. Um, when I sort of right at the beginning, I said, you know, you are the next JK Rowling. <laughs> and Harry Potter totally changed the publishing industry. Yeah. I think Children of Blood and Bone is going to do the same. If it changes it in one way, what would you like that to be? Ooh. <laughs> the most meaningful thing because there's so many changes I'd want, but like the most meaningful thing I think is when I meet young writers, especially when they're young black girls or girls of color or like, you know, Muslim girls or they're wearing a hijab when I meet them and they say, you've made me believe that I can tell my story. And that means so much to me because I've been writing since I was a kid and in my very first story, I wrote myself into it twice. I'd watched The Parent Trapped and I wanted a twin. <laughs> so in the story, it starts with twins named Marilyn and Carolyn, but by the end, it's like, Tommy galloped on the horse and she called out to her twin, Tommy, help me. Okay, Tommy, you know, so I loved myself and I really put myself in there. But from every story I can find from that point till I was 18, all my protagonists are white or they're biracial. Mm-hmm. And it's because I had internalized that black people couldn't be in stories and black yeah. people couldn't have adventures. And so I could imagine dragons and fantasy portals, but I couldn't imagine black people doing that. And when I realized how much I had internalized when I was 18, I was like, ooh, I got some self-esteem issues to work <laughs> out. Um, so it's it's a 
even writing a book like children of blood and bone is represents a lot for me internally and where i've come so when i see that in the little girls and that they feel like their stories are possible my hope would be that there's like the way we have so many magical boarding school stories and that's never going to change i would hope we have all these so many like epic stories but with all different types of people who we really didn't get to see before amazing Tommy, thank you so much thank if people you. want to find out more from you where can they find you yes so you can go to tomiediemi.com and find out all that information especially if you're a writer you'll see all my resources um, but then I'm really active on Instagram and Twitter so my Instagram is at T Eddie books. Um, and my Twitter is at Tommy underscore Eddie so you can Fabulous. find out everything there Fantastic. Thank you so much. Fabulous. Tommy Adiemi, author of the Children of Blood and Bone. One, two, three, four. You've been listening to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. If you liked it, you know what you should do? Subscribe. Then we'll be in your ears every single week. You could also rate and review us. A little five stars makes us happier than anything. Or a lot of five stars. Or a lot. Come talk to us at Badass Women's Hour HR. Tell us what you loved and we'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.